Was I supposed to tell some good news or something? Is that what it, is what it was? You remember about a year ago that Jason challenged... Oh, by the way, we got notes this morning. So hold your hand up if you want sermon notes. I about forgot that last service. You'll want these notes. <coughs> but anyway, last year, Jason made a challenge to pay the church off. Amen. Well, Friday, we wrote a check for $102,000 and $202,000 and paid the church off. That's a yay God. So what we've decided to do, we had our annual board meeting. Oh, yeah, I, I do get to stay another year. So, uh, <coughs> so uh, we're going to continue to make our payment, which is about $6,000 a month. We're going to make it into a savings account. $1,800 a month will go towards church camp. $4,200 a month will go towards future projects, could be remodel, it could be stuff that we need, it could be building a church in Honduras, it's something that we'll decide. So uh, we'll be able to save about $48,000 a year into a savings account that'll be used for further stuff. Not a family life center though, I'm not building anything else. Joe might. But I'm not. I've been through three building projects, and that's enough for me. Amen. Amen. Okay. <laughs> All right. Did Jason talk about the biscuit and gravy? Jason, Ramsey, you heathen? <laughs> okay, I got it right here. Uh, February the 23rd, our safety team. Uh, kind of an appreciation thing. They're going to serve biscuits and gravy before first service and second service. So if you uh, are interested in that, be here early and get some biscuits and gravy. That'll be awesome. Anybody like biscuits and gravy? It's, I don't think it's on Miss Tammy's uh, good eating list. She is having her uh, eat not to die. What? How not to die. Don't kill yourself with your teeth. Healthy eating. That'll be tonight at 6 o'clock in the fellowship hall. They're going to be serving biscuits and gravy. No. <laughs> no. And then Tuesday night at 6 o'clock, it'll be here. So if you're interested in that, eat not to die. Eat how not to die. So anyway, that's what we're going to do. Now we're going to talk about did God really say that? Uh, two weeks ago, last week we had a special guest, but two weeks ago we talked about can we trust the Bible? And we started out talking about what the Bible had to say about itself. And uh, we looked at several verses of Scripture where the Bible claims to be inspired of God. It, it claims to be God-breathed. And somebody might say, well, the Torah uh, claims that also. I understand that that is circular reasoning. So we're going to give you another reason today why we believe that the Bible can be trusted. I believe if there's a day that we live in where we need the Word of God, it's today. Christianity is swerving off path big time. 
in, in lots of different churches. Uh, the Methodist church is going through a huge uh, split right now over issues. And we're not going to get into those. But, but we have a lot of what I call smorgasbord Christianity where we pick and choose what we want. I want some grace, but I don't want any discipline. I want some, I want some blessing, but I don't want any of this responsibility. And, and so we're, we're, we're kind of setting up uh, a smorgasbord or uh, maybe a designer Christianity. And uh, most churches are guilty of that. I don't want this to be one of those. I don't want you to be one of those. So uh, we need to allow the Bible to say what it says. And then we need to wrap our lives around what it says. Not try to pick this scripture over here and this scripture over here. To, uh, to justify a lifestyle that is not biblical. And so we need the Word of God. We need to be able to trust the Word of God, especially if it's inspired of God. God's, one of God's greatest gifts to us, other than Jesus, is this Bible. He gave it to us to transform us. God, I say this all the time, in fact, it's on a shirt now. Man, I thought that's pretty awesome. It's on a shirt. God loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. Because if he left you where you are, you'd kill yourself. You'd never reach your purpose. You'd never sing the song that God put in your heart to sing. Christianity starts with a free gift called salvation, and then it becomes transformational after that. God wants to transform your life. And uh, I didn't say that first service, so somebody needed to hear that. Uh, we talked about uh, today, we're going to look at prophecy, fulfilled prophecy. So we're going to begin in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. This is a scripture that we read two weeks ago. But we're going to expound on it just a little bit today. For we did not follow cunning devised fables. Now this was written by the Apostle Peter. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, it was written by the Apostle Peter. And it was written around 68 A.D. That's 30, 36, 35, 36 years after the resurrection. He said, boy, that's a long time. Wait, next to it we talk about some things that you'll see some long times. But... For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, now listen. Now, he, what he's talking about here is the first coming, not the second coming, the first coming. <clears throat> and he said, we didn't spin any fables and we didn't pass along any uh, wild tales about this. These are things that we are eyewitnesses of. Most of the New Testament writers were with Jesus. Uh, Matthew, Mark, John. I don't know that Luke was. Luke was a physician. Uh, Paul had an uh, encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And later, he describes an experience he had where he was caught up into heaven. And some things were revealed to him. And, and it is probably the content of, of his writings. And then we, you know, we have Peter uh, right here, that they were eyewitnesses. These are people who were with Jesus, who touched Jesus, who saw the miracles, that heard the voices from heaven, uh, that 
set under his teaching. These were not, this is not second generational stuff. This is eyewitness accounts that he's talking about here. He says, we didn't, we didn't follow any cunning devised fables uh, about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. At the transfiguration, uh, they were in this special place and, and, and God spoke from heaven. You know, there were two others there. But God spoke to heaven and talking about Jesus, he says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed. Now, what prophetic word are they talking about? Wasn't New Testament. New Testament was being written. He's talking about the, what we call the Old Testament. Now, the Jews, do you know the Jews don't call it the Old Testament? The Jews don't believe in the New Testament. They don't have the Old Testament and the New Testament. They, have, they call it the Tanakh. The Tanakh. The, the, what we call the Old Testament, they call the Tanakh. But what they are referring to is prophecies from the Tanakh, or the Old Testament. And it said, It was confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. Now, I, that's intrigued me. What does that mean? It could mean several different things. Uh, it... it, it one of the things that it means that that no prophecy of Scripture stands alone. That it that it doesn't stand alone. There were over forty writers of of our Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. They lived over a span of fourteen hundred years before Christ. The uh, the Torah. The first five books were written around 1400 B.C. And in your notes, you can see when these books that we're going to talk about, when they were written. All of these prophecies were from 600 to 1400 years before Christ. And, and they lived in different parts. They, they all didn't know each other. They didn't live. Some of them were, were dead and gone before these others came along. So they were not privy to all of the information. But what's so amazing is that you get a piece here and a piece here and a piece here and a piece here, and it all comes together in one person, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today, that it all comes together in one person, Jesus Christ. So there, no, no passage stands by itself. Uh, it has to be compared with other scripture, other utterings, other things. And uh, it does not contradict. If, if something contradicts, it can't be inspired. Are you listening to me? So it, there's no, uh, there's, it's not contrary to what has been revealed by others. And it doesn't come from a prophet's interpretation. 
They're not giving their interpretation of something. They are be, they're being moved by the Holy Spirit. Many times they don't even understand what they're prophesying. We're going to look at some prophecies that Isaiah, who was six, six or seven hundred years before Christ, could, could not understand what he was prophesying. So these are not a, a prophet's insight into something. This is something that God did. But they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. So it says that no prophecy is of, of private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man. Somebody didn't sit down and say, huh, what am I going to say? What am I going to write? What am I, I going to utter? It's not something that they meditated on. It's not something that they knew. But it, but it didn't come by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure, and I almost know, that many things that they spoke, they didn't have any insight into. Now, that's amazing to me. Because many of these things come to pass over 1,400 years after they were spoke. So let's look at, we're going to look at about eight or nine of these. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. 300. Now, some of them are repetitive. So there's, there's about 150-something that, uh, that are not repetitive. And we're just going to look at eight or nine today. The first one is found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We quote this every Christmas season. And this is something that you're very familiar with. But understand that this prophecy came forth between 740 and 680 B.C. That was in Isaiah's lifetime. We don't know for sure what year, but it was between that lifetime. That's, I mean, how old is America? 1776, 18, 19, 200 and something years old. I'm not quick with math. This is... 700 years, three times as long of the history of the United States. And it says this in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. This is not going to be something that happens by the will of man. This is a sign that the Lord himself will give. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, do you think Isaiah understood all the implications of that? I don't think so. This is something he prophesied. I'm sure he scratched his head and I thought, I wonder what that means. See, we have hindsight. We, we've read the New Testament. We, we've seen, uh, we've read the story of Jesus. And we understand it. But can you imagine when this was given that he didn't have that, hind, uh, that foresight that he could foresee what was going on. We're here looking back. We are recipients. This is why I say that the Word of God is such a, a blessing because we have, we have hindsight. We, we can look from here back and see. And, and just let me say this. There are things that have yet to be fulfilled. Can we trust those? If these are true, chances are 
and the Bible's inspired that what we read and don't understand in the book of Revelation, how many, how many of you understand the book of Revelation? Anybody understand all of the book of Revelation? We'll, we'll let you teach a lesson on it. I don't think so. There, there, we get little glimpses, but if this back here is true, don't you think that there's a great probability that this forward is going to be true? I think so. I, I, I think so. I think we have... I think we have great probability that this is the Word of God, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that's before they had sexual relationships, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. See, they were considered married even before the marriage ceremony. The, the engagement, it was, a, it was a legal thing that happened between families. And they were considered married before it was consummated. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take your to your to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You know what Jesus means? It means Yeshua saves. It means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the, who spoke it? The Lord spoke it. Through the prophet, who? Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So that scripture was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in, his, in the conception and in his birth. His mother was a virgin. Now, how many of you know that's not possible by natural means? A few of you know that. <laughs> that just don't happen, does it? And, and you know, one of the, a lot of the critics of, of the Christian message, that's one of the things that they attack. That and the resurrection. And can I just tell you, if these two miracles did not take place, Christianity is a hoax. I mean, my goodness. I mean, two miraculous things that had to happen for this to be real. The first was the virgin birth. The Bible is a, is a progressive revelation. And there are some things that God says that, that may be a little vague. But he begins through history. He, begins, he starts here with this statement and then he begins to refine it. And we're going to see that in this next prophecy. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God is talking to Abraham. Abraham. And he told him in verse 3, and we, we quote this a lot. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. This is one of the great reasons that the church of Jesus Christ and Christianity needs to pray for, support, and bless Israel. If we're going, I mean, we cannot afford to be anti-Semitic. 
And there are churches who are anti-Semitic. You need to run, run, run when you see one of those because that's not good. And here's, but here's the, here's the prophetic part. And, I, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He didn't say in you the nation of Israel will be blessed. He said all the families of the earth will be blessed. I wonder what that means. It's bigger than Israel. It has to do with all of the families of the earth. It is a prophecy of Messiah. And we'll see that as, as God begins to refine this. Matthew 1.1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. The prophecy says that, that through him, the, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Then in Genesis twenty two eighteen, God talks to him again. Abraham offers Isaac, his son. Boy, that's a story within itself. That's a story with a picture with messianic uh, overtones to it. And because he offered Isaac uh, on the mountain... He says, in your seed, 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 singular, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. When, God, when, a, when Abraham offered his only son to God, then God turned around and says, now I'm going to offer my only son for you. This is, this is a messianic prophecy. Okay? Matthew 1 1 again. Well, we just read that, didn't we? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, later, because we have, and God confirms it to every generation Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're going to talk about Jacob now. Jacob and his offspring. How many children did, or how many sons did Jacob have? Twelve. Who did Jacob become? God changed his name from Jacob to what? Israel. Okay? He had twelve sons. We studied about the twelve tribes of Israel. And so we see in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is about to die. And one of the, one of the things that the patriarchs would do is they would gather their children around their bed and the Holy Spirit would come on them and they would prophesy to their children. And so when it, when it came Judah's turn, here is what Jacob said to Judah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh there, according to the Jewish rabbis, is a reference, now this is, their, this is their teaching, is a reference to Messiah, the King Messiah. So it's a messianic prophecy, a messianic prophecy. In Luke 3, 33, it's given the genealogy again of Jesus, and it says this, that he is the son of Amenadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. So who did Jesus descend through? Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. 
Abraham had more sons than Isaac. He had more sons than, than the next one had more sons than, than Jacob and then Judah. There were 12 of those. So God begins to streamline this prophecy and he is eliminating folks that the Messiah could come through. He does it even further in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Jeremiah was written between five and 600 years before Christ. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. This is messianic prophecy again. Luke 3.31, you ready for this? Genealogy, the son of Malaya, the son of Menan, the son of George, Mathahiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. What is he doing? He is eliminating those. He is streamlining the genealogy of the Messiah. The son of David. Let's get to a little bit more specific one. These were kind of general. Micah 5.2. It gives the birthplace of Messiah. We studied this during Christmas. In fact, we even got it closer to that. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah. There are two Bethlehems in, in Israel. One is right out of, uh, it's in north Israel. It's right out of where Jesus lived. There's a Bethlehem there, and then there's one south of Jerusalem, and that is Bethlehem Ephratah. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now what are the chances that a prophet... 700 and something years before Christ could predict the Messiah's birthplace. We see that it predicted the line, it, 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 it narrowed it down all the way to David, and then it predicted his birthplace. Matthew 2.1 Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, or Ephratah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So here we see, again, that Jesus fulfills these prophecies in the Old Testament. Things that were prophesied hundreds of years before he came along. Now here's an interesting one. Jeremiah chapter 31. After he was born, babies would be killed in Bethlehem. Babies would be killed. Thus says the Lord, the voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children. Now, Rachel is buried in Ramah, which is in the vicinity of, uh, of Jerusalem. Refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So he's, he's predicting that something is going to happen that would even cause Rachel to weep, even though she's in her tomb, okay? Okay. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. 
This is after the wise men came to Jesus. And he, what did Herod say to the wise men? When you find out where he is, let me know so that I can bring gifts and worship. Was he going to go to worship Jesus? No, he's going to go kill Jesus. So God spoke to the wise men. He says, don't go back to Herod. Go home another way. So when Herod found out, verse 16, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, he was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and, and in all of its districts from two years older and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What are we seeing? The fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that was prophesied hundreds of years before the time of Messiah. Now, we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 53. Pretend that you don't know where this is at. And you tell me what this sounds like. This is going to be a lengthy reading. But you tell me what this sounds like. This is, this is one of the most amazing scriptures. In fact, there are Jewish writings that leave this out. In fact, some of the skeptics of Christianity said that this was added later until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what was in the Dead Sea Scrolls? See, uh, most, most of the, the manuscripts that we have are A.D. But they found the Dead Sea Scrolls that had been da dated back 150 B.C. And they found out that Isaiah 53 was in, in those Isaiah Scrolls and that it was there all along. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Who does that sound like? Does that parallel what happened at Calvary? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's talking about someone whom God laid our iniquity on. He was oppressed when, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. When they brought Jesus before the authorities, he was quiet. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And he had made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. He died among the thieves, 
but he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. They could, when they examined Jesus, when the authorities examined Jesus, they said, we don't find any fault in him. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. Who does that sound like? For he shall bear their iniquities. Is not that the New Testament story? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What is Jesus doing today at the right hand of the Father? The Bible says he ever lived to make intercession for us. Oh, don't that sound like Jesus? Doesn't that sound like the crucifixion? 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin nor deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did Jesus say on the cross? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. It's a direct quote of Isaiah. Now we're going to go to Psalms 22. See if these words ring true in your heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where do we hear those words? Huh? On the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried that. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groan. What was he doing? He was quoting Psalms 22, which he inspired, and then he fulfilled. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Didn't they not mock him on the cross? And say those very things to him. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. What happens when they pierced his side? What came out? Blood and water. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me down to the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Look at this. They pierce my hands and my feet. Did you know this was written 300 years before crucifixion even came along? Wow. What is that? David, by the Holy Spirit, is prophesying. What happened on the cross? 
I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Look at this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even he who cannot keep himself alive. Wow. He prophesied the events of Calvary, even when they cast lots for his clothing. One more. He had to rise from the dead. This is the second great miracle. There's a lot of great miracles. Psalms 16, 9 through 11 says this. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When we see the right hand, when it talks about God's right hand, you know what it's talking about? Who sits at the right hand of the Father? Oh, yeah, you think? Coincidence. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaching a sermon. They were making fun of these people who were speaking in tongues. And they said, well, they're, they're drunk, they're crazy drunk or something. Peter stands up and he says, you know what? These men are not drunk as you suppose. But this is that which was spoken by the, the, the prophet Joel, a fulfillment of a prophecy. But he goes on in this. As he's preaching this sermon in verse 25, 225, for David says concerning him, Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You made known to me the path, the, the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy, your presence. Men and brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. I got to go see David's tomb when I was in Israel. He's dead. He's in that tomb. They guard it. Therefore, being a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that, that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption Jesus fulfilled that prophecy when he was raised from the dead isn't that amazing that's amazing stuff there's a book written called Science Speaks by a man named Peter Stoner. Somebody put a nickel in there. Peter Stoner was, a, uh, was the chairman of the Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College until 1953. He wrote this book. What they did, they figured the odds of something. Now, I've got somewhere in here. I've lost it. I've got 100 quarters in this bucket. And in this bucket somewhere. Oh, there it is. I see it. <laughs> I marked a quarter with a, with a magic marker. Okay. 
There's a hundred quarters in here. I'm going to drop that in, mix it up. And if I came up to you and held this and says, reach in and grab a quarter, what are the odds of you getting that quarter? One in a hundred. That's 10 to the second power, right? One, one with two zeros. That, that, that's a possibility, isn't it? Well, when we talk about fulfilling prophecy, let's take eight prophecies. What is the probability that one man could fulfill eight prophecies? They, did, they figured this. And guess what? We can't use this bucket. Our bucket is going to be the state of Texas. Now, Texas is over 256,000 square miles. If you ever drove across Texas, it takes a while, doesn't it? So we're going to take silver dollars, and what it is, it's 1 to the 17th power. That's 1 with 17 zeros behind it. That's 100 quadrillion silver dollars. That's about like our national debt, isn't it? Not quite. One with 17 zeros behind it. If we took those silver dollars, uh, uh, what was it, a hundred quadrillion of them? It would cover the landmass of Texas two feet deep. So let's say that we put that one quarter in there and we mix it up and we blind, we're going we're gonna to blindfold Adrian and say, you go anywhere you want to in Texas and, and reach over and pick up that quarter, blindfolded. What is his chances? One in 100 quadrillion. Just for eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Quadrillion, 100 quadrillion. Wonder what the odds are of winning the lottery. Guess what? If you don't buy a ticket, zero. And they're pretty much zero anyway, aren't they? And that's just one in 90 million or something like that. This is much, much bigger than that. So let's, okay, let's say, let's do uh, 16 prophecies. They figured that. That is one to the 45th power. That is, see if I can pronounce this one. That's one quattro decillion. That's a big number, isn't it? They started calculating that, and, and they got to figure from the earth to the sun 30 times and spreading silver dollars. Wait to this next one. That's, that's, that's just 16 prophecies. What about 48? It's 1 to the 150 power. You got it in your, you can see it right there. That's 1, see if I can do this, novum quadragentillion. That's a big number. When they got to calculating that, they got to calculating atoms in the universe. That it's on that scale. So what are the chances of Jesus fulfilling 300 prophecies? Zero. Unless. Unless. It was guided by God. Can we trust the New Testament? 
I think we can. Can we trust the Old Testament? I think we can. The odds are totally from the natural impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus is Messiah. This Bible is His book. And it's God-breathed. Now next week, we're going to look at manuscripts and talk about manuscripts.